Well, last Sunday, uh, we talked about how uh, when teachers teach kids how to read, uh, one of the important skills they talk about is pre-reading. Uh, so you get a new book and you flip it over and maybe you read the back or you look up the author and you find out a little bit more about the author or you uh, start paging through the, uh, the chapters and you get a sense maybe of, of where the plot is going and the story. Uh, in school, we were taught that good readers pre-read. We don't just jump into a book without doing something to, to set up the context for ourselves, figure out uh, some sense of where, of where the story is going to go. So we, we pre-read. And, and so that's what we're, we're taking last Sunday and this Sunday to do as we come to the book of John, to the Gospel of John. Instead of, instead of jumping right into a verse-by-verse uh, -verse exposition, which we're going to start next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, but instead of just jumping right into that, we're going to take some time to orient ourselves with this gospel account. So last week, uh, we worked through some of the basics around John's record of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Uh, so we talked about authorship, first of all. Uh, we worked through the fact that the uh, Apostle John, who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in the text, um, not John the Baptist, but John the disciple of Jesus, who became John the Apostle. He wrote, this, uh, he wrote this gospel. And in terms of authorship, we also need to say that, that God himself is the ultimate author of the gospel. Uh, so whenever we come to the Bible, it's absolutely crucial that we remember uh, that while uh, God moved through human authors and their personality uh, to, to get us the texts of Scripture, so, uh, so there, was, uh, there were human authors for our Bible, Still, ultimately, God serves as the supreme author of Scripture, which is the point that Paul makes to Timothy when he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And then that's the case, of course, with, with John's Gospel, just as it is with the whole of our Bibles. This is, this is John the Apostle's word to us here, but above and over all of that, this is God's word to us. And so we talked about authorship a bit last week. And then we also talked about the date that this letter or this uh, Gospel was written uh, on, pro probably uh, most likely, this was written around the end of John's life, so uh, somewhere between A.D. 80 and 90, uh, probably, the, this, this gospel was written. And then we also talked about the purpose of this account of Jesus' life, and John makes it very easy for us to discern his purpose, because at the end of John chapter 20, he tells us very directly that he wrote this, uh, this gospel account, this good news account of Jesus, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we, we would have something, we would possess something, we would have life in His name. So that's why John wrote this, so that we would be believing in, in, the, in the identity and person and work of Jesus Christ, and in Jesus, we would be able to find life. And so the point of this gospel is that movement toward, uh, toward maybe even initial belief, but also movement towards greater and greater belief and trust in who the Lord Jesus is. And, and so, of course, we, we know that. We know our great need in life is always to have that purpose pressed upon us. I, I want to, we want to be believing in Jesus more. That, that's, that's what matters most of all. We need to see Him for who He is, trust in Him, be, be oriented toward Him in a posture of yielding trust. And so those were the basics last week that we talked about. So we talked about authorship, we talked about date, we talked about purpose. This week, we're going to step back from the from the basics in, in that sense of the word, and we're going to pick two other elements to focus on as a matter of pre-reading in John's gospel, uh, just to help set a framework for us as, as we get into the book. Uh, so this week, we're going to be focusing on two elements. Uh, the first is going to be uh, John's gospel and the sevens. That'll be the first thing we focus on today. 
The second thing we focus on today will be John's gospel and the individual. So those are the two subject areas that will take up our study. And, and, I, and I picked those particular subjects purposefully. Um, on the one hand, that there are so many thematic elements that we could trace through John's writing here in terms of just doing an overview, in terms of orienting ourselves in a pre-reading kind of way, that there are so many important themes that show up that we could talk about from the beginning. So, so there are themes like knowing, or themes like believing, or, or themes like truth, or abiding, or life, or, or light and darkness, or, 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 or any, any number of different things. Sending, as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. There are all these magnificent themes in John's Gospel that we could unpack from beginning to end. Or we could even pick specifics about, about Trinitarian theology. John has a great deal to teach us about, about how we understand God the Father and, and God the Holy Spirit as well as God the Son. John gives us great help along those lines. So we could spend some time tracing Trinitarian themes, or we could, we could just camp on the unique way that John presents the cross. Instead of the cross being a, a, a sober moment of grim darkness, as the cross is in the other Gospels. In John, the, the cross of Christ is revealed still with that deep, deep seriousness. Obviously, there's a gravitas to it, a, a sorrow to it even. But, but the cross in John's Gospel is the victory of the Lamb. In John, we have the lifting up of Jesus, which is a glory kind of thing. Glory is another huge theme in John's gospel. In John's gospel, we have the lifting up of Jesus, but Jesus' lifting up is Him being lifted up upon a cross. Right? So we can spend time tracing out some of the significance of that irony in John. Exaltation through crucifixion is unique to John in that sense. So there's, so there's so much we could do. With all these things, I tried to pick two themes for today that, that can really help tie the book together and it might be a little bit harder to, to, to spend specific time on just in the regular course of our exposition. So in the regular course of our expositions, all these other themes, they're going to, we're going to have great space to, to work them out as, as we go along. But I tried to pick two that might just be a little bit uh, 30,000 feet in, over, over the whole gospel in a way that's a little different than some of the others. So... I don't know, you can decide if it was worth it or not at the end of the sermon, I guess. But, um, but, but with that said, we, we have the, these two focuses for our, for our pre-reading today. The sevens of John's gospel and then the individual in John's gospel. So that's, that's where we're going to focus. Good? Ready? Okay, here we go. Here we go. First of all, the sevens in John's gospel. We have, we have two big sets of seven. Um, we could, we could argue that there's a third, but if we take the time to do that, I'll have to do a whole other Sunday on introduction, and we don't, we don't want to do that. So, so, so two, two sets. We'll just stop there. Um, now, now, when it comes to, to, a, to a, a Hebraic, a Hebrew mindset in writing, and we've talked about this before, you know, even, even though the New Testament was written in Greek, the, the influence of, of, the, of the Jewish culture and mindset, which was so formed by the historical Hebrew framework of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebraic mindset carries through the whole New, the whole New Testament as well, uh, not, not least of all in terms of literary references and literary tools and those kinds of things. And we, we actually talked about this a little while back in our studies in Samuel, but, but one thing that we can be watching for in our reading of the Bible is certain numbers which have particular significance in, in Hebrew literature as a literary device. Now, a while back, we talked about this with the number three back in Samuel. Um, we also see significance with the number seven. In fact, biblical scholarship is very agreed on that. So, so let me just give you this quote from the New Bible Dictionary, just the standard InterVarsity Press New Bible Dictionary talks about this with relationship to the number seven. Seven 
has an eminent place among sacred numbers in the scriptures and is associated with completion, fulfillment, and perfection. Recognizing the number as a kind of literary device in the Bible. It's associated with completion, fulfillment, and perfection. And we, and we see this in the Scriptures. Uh, God's work of creation, obviously, is the first example we can go to with this. God's work of creation is complete in the Genesis narrative, and He rested on the seventh day and set that day apart as holy after creation had been proclaimed as very good. So there's a completeness, there's a sacredness represented in, in the seventh day which will obviously become the Sabbath day in, in the course of, of framed worship. Uh, later, when, when various feasts are prescribed for Israel, like the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Booths, that there are seven feasts prescribed. In fact, that's where we could get a little carried away. John points it, to those, those feasts in a unique way, which we're not going to get into. If you want to study this on your, uh, on your own at home, maybe you can. But, but how does Jesus fulfill the seven feasts in John's gospel? That's an interesting question. Uh, just for just for Bible study, but there are seven feasts prescribed. Uh, when Israelites when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, you remember it was on the seventh day, marching around the city of Jericho seven times that the wall falls down. Right, so there's that fulfillment of God's promise element represented in that fulfillment is tied to seven. Perfection is tied to seven. In fact, we know that, that John thinks in these categories uh, because when he writes the book of Revelation. You might remember how John speaks about the Holy Spirit. If we don't have a literary frame of reference for this number seven, it can be very confusing for us. But, but, but in Revelation, listen to the way John gives a Trinitarian blessing to his readers at the beginning of the book. Just listen to this. He says, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, or we could say from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Did you hear the Trinity in that? Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, who is to come. There's God the Father. And from the seven spirits before his throne. There's the holy, sacred, perfect spirit. It's not that there are seven holy spirits. It's that the Holy Spirit is a perfect and complete person, part of the personhood of God. And then, of course, and from Jesus Christ, he adds. Uh, so he uses seven in that perfect and complete way. So, so not only do we have many, many examples of the significance of the number seven in the Bible, but, but we actually see John employing it in really emphatic ways in a, in a number of uh, instances in his writing. So it's, it's a number that literarily indicates completion, fulfillment, perfection, those kinds of things. And, and so we have that in our minds and we start reading John's gospel. And in this gospel, we come across these two really significant groups of seven. First of all, John records seven I am sayings of Jesus. And secondly, John calls attention to seven signs or seven miracles. John likes the word signs, so we use that. Seven signs that Jesus performs. So there are seven I am sayings and there are seven signs in John's gospel. And we already know the main purpose that John is driving us forward, uh, the purpose being uh, that we would be believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we would have life in His name. We know that's the purpose that John is driving us forward uh, toward, and so we can follow John's logic in that if we're going to be called to believe in Jesus and find life, we, we must know central, complete, fulfilling, perfect, whole truths that define who Jesus is, and as John gives us his gospel contribution to God's revelation of Jesus Christ, these two groups of seven over the course of the gospel help to fill out the identity of Jesus and give us more of what we need to grow in our belief in him. 
So, so they help us properly identify the significance, the perfection, the completion of what is offered, for, offered to us in, in the person and work of Christ. So what we'll do is, is we'll just run through these two sets of seven and, and notice some, some significance in terms of how they're presented. And again, this, this can just help us frame things as we encounter them in our studies along the way. Okay, so, so first of all, we'll say something about John's uh, recorded seven I am sayings of Jesus. And, and you, you know these, these will be familiar to us. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the bread of the li- I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. Seven sayings of Jesus. And as we immediately notice, each of these, in a sense, metaphors of self-identification on the part of Jesus are, are going to be extremely critical to a proper, more full understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, but, but before we, we, we talk, say, about what it means that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, which, of course, is, is a unique element of Jesus' identity, as distinct from the fact Jesus says, I am the door, those are two very, or I am the shepherd, very different things that Jesus is getting at with those pictures. But be, before we get into those different aspects of the way Jesus brings about his identity in terms of his discourses, um, before we spend time on those kind of differences, we have to note that seven times Jesus refers to himself beginning with that phrase, I am. I am. And as students of Scripture, that I am stands out as it did to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That I am stands out to us. And it stands out as the most extraordinary point of identification for Jesus because in saying I am, Jesus is applying the name of the covenant-keeping God of Israel to himself. I am is how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. You remember that in Exodus 3? Moses approaches that bush. It won't burn up. The fire just keeps going. And there the Lord reveals his personal name to Moses as he calls Moses into his service. So so God says that his name is I am or I am who I am. It's just the the to be verb in Hebrew. I will be what I will be. The the, the name is God's own personal and covenant, uh, covenantal Revelation of himself as the, as the totally self-existent, in need of nothing, uh, forever existing, and personally revealing God. That, that, that is how he chooses to reveal himself by name. I am. He, he ever was and ever will be. And the translation of I am back, back into Hebrew we know as Yahweh. That, that, that name of, of God in the Old Testament. And in John's gospel, Jesus comes and reveals this huge aspect of truth about himself. So he's the door, right? Jesus is the door. He's the vine. He's the way, the truth, the life. He's the resurrection. He's the good shepherd, all of those things. But in each of those cases, seven times, along with those unique elements of Jesus' personhood that he reveals to us, with that, Jesus takes the divine name as his own self-identifier. Who is this Jesus whom we're called to believe in? seven times, a complete and perfect number of times, John makes sure we see this is Yahweh. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the revelation of the promise-making and promise-keeping and eternally existing God of covenantal faithfulness down through the history of God's dealings with His people. He's the I Am. In fact, in John 8, where Jesus refers to Himself as the I Am to the Jews, they pick up stones to try to stone Him because they get exactly what Jesus is saying. To them, in their unbelief, 
this is total blasphemy. No one can claim to be God. Unless, of course, you are. And Jesus is. And so, and so as we grow in our belief in Jesus through the studies of this gospel, we, we, we don't want to miss this truth. Jesus is a magnificent teacher. He performs signs and wonders. He goes to the cross, falsely accused, a martyr. But, but with all of that, we can't miss the fact that to really know Jesus, we must understand that he is the eternal promise-keeping God entering into our human experience. And that's where John wants us to start, even in the prologue that Heidi read for us this morning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we'll camp on this truth much more as we go on in our studies. But, but this is just, just very worth noting in the beginning. Because, because when, when we trust in Jesus, there's a sense in which we can, we, we can almost get caught up just in the true humanity of Jesus. Of course, he, he is fully human as, as well as fully divine. And we are overcome with gratitude for Jesus' humanity. We would never want to lessen that in any way, shape, or form. In his humanity, he identifies with us and we praise him for that. We find that he's our comforter because of that. He knows the burdens we carry. And he doesn't know the burden. Jesus knows the burdens we carry, not just because he's God and omniscient who knows all things. Jesus knows the burdens we carry experientially because we, he's been tempted in every way as we are, uh, but yet without sin. So, so the humanity of Jesus is an extraordinary thing for us to wrap our minds around, meditate on, take great comfort in. He has to be made like us. As Hebrews said, if he's going to identify with us in order to be our savior, our priest, all of those kinds of things. But with that, we can never lose sight of the transcendent fact that while the humanity of Jesus is a comfort, the divinity of Jesus is still an extraordinary truth that we need to keep at the forefront of our minds. And not just the divinity, but his I am divine identity. Listen to how one theologian describes the, uh, the I am-ness of God. Uh, remember, remember, his name is just the to be verb in Hebrew. It just means I, I am, I will be what I will be. He, he says this, God being I, I am means that he will be everything to and for his people. It is not a new and strange God who comes to them, but the God of the fathers, the unchangeable one, the faithful one, the eternally self-consistent one who never leaves or forsakes his people, but always again to save his people is the same God as he who appeared to their fathers. He is who he is, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is who Jesus is, the climactic revelation of Yahweh. And, and we could camp on this for some time, but, but, but just to say that this is who Jesus is is, is an extraordinary truth for us to, for us to have fill our hearts uh, at certain times, especially in our Christian life, he, he is the God of eternal constancy and faithfulness. He just is. He, he's not one who changes and leaves us confused and afraid. Jesus isn't one who said he'll be present with us and then, and then leaves to give, uh, to give us no help. He is who he is. He will be who he will be. He will be who he always has been. He is the God of eternal, consistent, self-existent perfection, right? Always, savingly, faithfully, forever for his people. And we need to be reminded of that. I, I, I don't trust in Jesus only to wake up one morning and have him not be who I need him to be. He is, I am. He always will be who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. So, so seven I am sayings help us understand what it means that God has come to us, that Jesus is the one who comes to us. So now we start unpacking this in our studies, don't we? What does it mean that the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, is the door? What does it mean that Yahweh is the good shepherd? What does it mean that Yahweh is resurrection? 
Right? Now we start unpacking those things that Jesus is going to reveal in his own, in his own interactions. But we start here with the I am-ness of Christ. So we have those seven I am sayings that we'll anticipate in our study. And then uh, we have the other set of seven in John, and that's the seven miracles uh, Jesus does in the first half of the gospel, uh, which, which are regularly referred to as the seven signs, uh, because signs is the word that John, uh, John likes to use for them. Obviously, signs being a pointer, a director to something. Uh, miracles uh, describes the event as, as something uh, uh, miraculous to see, obviously astounding to see. Signs mean the whole point is not just what you see right here, but it's directing you. Right? So that's why John likes that word, is directing us, which we'll see exactly what that means. So, so if the seven I am sayings of Jesus are meant to help us identify that he's the promise-keeping God who's come to us in, in perfection and fullness, completeness, all of those things, well, then the seven signs, the signs help us see that to trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is to believe in the one who is uniquely glorious. To believe in the one who's uniquely glorious. That's what the signs show us in John's gospel. Before anything else, Jesus is preeminently worthy of our worship and our awe. And in fact, we know this is the point of the signs in John because uh, for a number of reasons, just to pick one though, right, right in the very beginning, we're told that, that this is a purposeful effect of that very first sign that Jesus performed where at that wedding in Canaan, he turned water into wine. Remember that in, in John chapter 2. Uh, and then in verse 11, we read that Jesus did this miracle purposefully revealing his glory, not just to be nice to his mom. He did this to purposefully reveal his glory and the effect of that was to bring his disciples further along in their belief in him, we're told in John chapter 2. And then six more signs follow. Jesus heals the official son. We're called to, to look at the glories of Christ. He has power over sickness. Okay? Then Jesus heals the lame man. Look at the glories of Christ. He has, he has power over broken bodies. Okay? Then Jesus feeds the 5,000. Look at the glories of Christ. Jesus as this extraordinary provider. Jesus walks on water. Look at the glories of Christ, the master over the created order. That makes us worship. Right? Then Jesus heals the blind man. Look at the glories of Christ. Even our sightless eyes can be overcome by Jesus. A great hope for us when we don't quite see who Jesus is. That maybe is my favorite miracle. Right? Number seven, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Look at the glories of Christ. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's a death defeater. That's glorious. So, so put all these seven together, and we have an extraordinary series of demonstrations of Jesus' life-restoring majesty. And in John's gospel, it, it is just that. It's this idea of glory, majesty, awe that's present and meant to ultimately crank our stiff necks heavenward and compel our belief in Jesus. See the glories of who He is, which is a little different function than Jesus' miracles serve in the other gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' miracles are constantly reinforcing that Jesus is the worthy and potent King of God's kingdom. Right? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and as, as the King of God's kingdom, Jesus has the power to make all things whole and new and flourishing and peaceful and restored, which is a, a, a tremendous point of hope for us. We're, we're so glad to see uh, and say, Amen, come Lord Jesus, to that reality. In fact, that's exactly what we prayed about today in Psalm 72. He's the one who's going, to, who's, who's going to make new wine abound. He's the one who's going to bring help to the oppressed, all of these kinds of things. That's what he proves himself able to do in the miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
But then John comes along. And, and, and in the providence of God, even as our Bibles are now put together for us, if we're reading just through our, our Gospels, there's a, there's a check here that this provides. Because maybe we've been reading from the other Gospels and we've seen the miraculous stories, uh, and, and there can be no doubt, Jesus is the one who makes all things new. He, he just is the one who has the power to do that. Clearly he can. Not even death itself can, can, can uh, win over Jesus. He's the one who brings total restoration. We've been reading about all this, and maybe we've started to do that thing we do as humans all too often. We, we, we've started to love someone or something because of what we get out of that someone or something. I'm really liking Jesus as this King Savior person because I really, above all things, I just want my body to finally be whole. I look forward to that resurrection. Which is okay until it's not. Because John with his contribution comes along and says, now let's just check our starting point. Don't just come to Jesus because of what you get in terms of future hope. Come to Jesus because of the fundamental, or, or maybe John would like this better, I think we could say, because of the ontological reality that before anything else, before any benefit is ever considered, come to Jesus because He is the glorious one, full stop. Remember that word glory from its Old Testament roots. It means something has great weighty worth. Where we start with loving Jesus is not with what we get out of Him, where we start with loving Jesus and believing in Jesus. It is the extraordinary weighty worth of who He is in His personhood. First see His glory. Come to Jesus, see that He's the glorious one who brings us to our knees in awe. And that's primarily what the signs in John are meant to do. It's actually interesting, in John chapter 12, uh, he'll quote from Isaiah, have some things to say about the signs and the unbelief of the people and some of those things through the prophet Isaiah. Um, but, but then John says that Isaiah said these things about Jesus because Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and then spoke about him. Remember Isaiah 6? It's an it's a, a extraordinary passage, but we can read it with, with some theological blandness sometimes. Remember how it starts? Isaiah, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a lofty, a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with the other two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The, his glory fills the whole earth. And then Isaiah says, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Whose glory did Isaiah see? If you want to talk about Christ in the Old Testament, John tells us Isaiah saw Christ's glory. And as a result, Isaiah was brought to his knees, cleansed of his sin, and sent on his mission. And that's what the signs in John's gospel are meant to do to us. They're meant to bring us to our knees, realize the grandeur of the person of Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Did you see him walk across the churning seas? Right? 
We're brought to our knees, realize the grandeur of the person of Jesus Christ. We feel our need for Him, experience His cleansing work on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, pays our full price for sin for all who will believe in Him, and then be sent out on a mission by Him into the world around us. And all that starts with beholding His glory, beholding the weighty worth of the Messiah, the Son of God, which is again what we have in the prologue. He revealed the glory of God. That's what we need to see. And that's what these signs will help us see. We'll be left worshiping on that point. So, so we need the, the hope that the miracles of Jesus give us in the other Gospels. We need the hope that Jesus' return promises, that, that wholeness of life. He's the King of the kingdom. He can do these things for us. We see Him as the King that we need. We would never diminish that, not, not, not even one little bit. Jesus is the one who makes all things new as King. If you doubt it, look at what He did for the widow of Nain's son, for example. There He is in the funeral procession. procession. Jesus raised Him from the dead. Look at what he did for Peter's mother-in-law. There she is, sick with fever in the home. Jesus goes in, makes her whole and well. She gets up and serves them. Right? This is, he's the one we need. He brings that kind of restoration. He makes all things new. That, that's an extraordinary truth we cling to on so many days. But let's not love Jesus for what he does instead of who he is. For that future hope to be real and lasting, it must begin with us in awe of Jesus' glory. There is none like Him, holy, high, righteous, pure, eternal, powerful. He is I Am, after all. Remember the man born blind in John chapter 9? Why is the man blind, Jesus' disciples ask? Is it because he sinned or is it because his parents sinned? They've got it all buttoned down. A or B, which one is it, Jesus? Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. Got the whole thing wrong. He was born blind. Why? So that in my healing of him, God's works might be displayed in him. It's a glory thing, Jesus says. See the mighty works of God. So we long to see. We need that. We come to study the gospel. We long to see the glories of Christ and be brought to our knees like Isaiah was on that day in the temple. We, we long to see the glories of Christ and be moved to repentance, come to know his cleansing grace, and go out in his service. And we're moved to that, not merely by what benefit we get from Jesus, but we long to be moved into his service because of the sheer glories of who Jesus is. Okay, so, so there are John's two big sets of seven. Jesus says, I am, seven I am sayings. And then Jesus proves to be this glorious one uh, through seven signs in John's gospel. So that's John's gospel in the sevens. Um, now, now we'll finish out today by just saying something about John's gospel and the individual. John's gospel and the individual. Um, <clears throat> by using the word individual, we, we, we are highlighting the fact that there's a specific focus on something uh, just especially personal about John's gospel. And, and, we, and we've already actually got a teaser of that with regard to the way John feels so free to speak about himself in John's gospel. John is free to be very personal, so much so that he, he just refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm a disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't do that to the exclusion of Jesus' love for others, but he's confessing, remember, his own very personal awareness of Jesus' specific, relationally particular love for him. And we talked about that at length last week. And that personal individual element is an important thing to be mindful of as we study this book because it comes through in, in, in some different ways as we study. One way we see this 
is in the aphorisms of Jesus, in his, in his sayings. So, for example, in John 3, Jesus says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Very straightforward. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who. That is personal. It's individual. And there are 37 the one who sayings in John. That's a lot. And that's personal. Jesus doesn't say the people who, the group who, the crowd who. No, the one who believes. And along those same lines, we also have the if anyone does this or that, he will receive this or that. That kind of interaction with Jesus. Uh, we have 17 of those sayings from Jesus in here. For example, John 8, 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's personal. Jesus doesn't say, if you all as a people do this, then you will experience no death or whatever it may be. No, if you trust in me, you singular trust in me, you singular won't see death. Right? It's a me and you thing Jesus is saying, which is also emphasized in the nature of Jesus' interactions in this gospel. Whether, whether it's, it's Nicodemus who comes to Jesus under cover of night or in the interaction with the woman at the well in John 4. In, in this gospel, we have Jesus engaged in uniquely intimate, private, personal conversations with just an individual. Right? Not, a, not in a group that there's not a corporate dynamic focus here. Now, that's not to say that there's not a corporate dynamic we're called into as disciples in John's gospel. We need to make that distinction. The, the, the world will know that we're Jesus' disciples by the fact that what? That we love one another, he says in John chapter 13. Right? So, so, so we have to make a distinction between the individual in John's gospel and what we might call individualism or isolationism in, 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 in our own lives that can creep in. So, so in this text, it's not like there's an emphasis on it's okay to live alone away from God's people, just you and Jesus. In fact, to be removed from God's people is not, is not to do a whole bunch of the missionary function that we were saved to do. So that just doesn't work for John. There, there's no isolation from God's people. In fact, in John's gospel, there's not even isolation from the world. You're not even allowed to remove yourself from the world. J Jesus prays in John 17 that we would not be taken out of the world. Right? No isolation anywhere but there is an emphasis on our individuality as we're drawn out in belief in Christ. So one scholar makes this comment. He says, in John's gospel, readers or hearers are simply not allowed to forget that response to Jesus has to be individual to be real. Response to Jesus has to be individual to be real. Or to use Martin Luther's more poetic way of putting it, Every man must do two things alone, his own believing and his own dying. There's an individuality to John's gospel that's essential to our understanding of what it means to, to turn to Jesus. And we need this reminder because often, I just say even for the older kids who are still sitting in here today, but believing in Jesus can exist for us insofar as it's a community thing that we do. Of course, I believe in Jesus. It's what my family does. Right? We can fall into that line. Oh, yeah, yes, I believe in Jesus. It's what I'm used to. I've been in church, raised in church. Yes, I believe in Jesus. It just seems like the right thing to do, you know, given the, these are people who are nice to me and support me and so on. Yes, I believe in Jesus. It's, it's very important to my spouse. So, of course, I go to church. Yes, I'm a Christian, very, very much so. My, it's very important to my spouse. I believe in Jesus. Right? Here's the thing. None of those are real enough. Response to Jesus has to be individual to be real. And we need to hear this from Christ through John's gospel. There is an individual call here to personally, individually, independently, on your own say, 
Lord Jesus, you are the glorious king. I am a great sinner. Lord Jesus, I need your cross work applied to me for the forgiveness of my sins. I need you to be my good shepherd. I need you to be the way, the truth, and the life for me. I need you to be my resurrection hope. I need you to be my savior. In our contemporary age, the danger of, of, of the group, the, the danger of the collective whole weighs on us really in two main ways as Christian believers. On the one hand, uh, there's that collective, broader, cultural whole at large that, that rejects Jesus. Um, so, so we must value knowing Christ more than valuing the, the group cultural opinion of the day, right? And then we understand that group dynamic. There's an individuality that we feel there as we go out into the world. Uh, and so often we feel alone for Christ in that way. There's an individuality that the broader culture around us causes to surface in our heart, and we recognize it, right? But we have to shirk the temptation of the, of the larger cultural group who says believing in Jesus is silly, obeying Jesus is silly. It doesn't make any sense in our day. It's something from an age gone by. Uh, that's, that's silly to believe. Just come over to our group where everything's happy and whole and well. We'll, we'll. we'll bring you right in. No, there's an individuality that we have to recognize in our Christian experience right now. We know it. We know it all. Our kids know it all too well in school right now. We talked about it at youth group last Sunday. But with that, and equally as dangerous, though much more subtle, is, to quote the eagles, there can be a peaceful, easy feeling that comes just from being in the community of God's people. I'm with the people who know Jesus. I'm good. I go most weeks to church. Right? I, I, I enjoy it. I pray a lot of times. I'm with the people who know Jesus. I'm good. But no. No, 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 you're not. In this gospel, Jesus makes it very clear that we are saved into the corporate body of his people, no doubt. But in that, we have an individual responsibility to confess our need and believe in Jesus in the most intimate, personal sense possible. So Jesus says in John chapter 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever, it's personal. It's not a group connection thing. It's a personal belief thing. And so we appreciate that angle in John's gospel. We need that, we need that reminder. I'm called out in an intimate way to believe in Jesus, which the, the great encouragement on the other side of this is the I am, the transcendent God of the universe. What is he interested in? He is interested in intimately being acquainted with all my ways and having a relationship with me that is not based on some community whole, but is based on the individuality of who I am, the things I'm going through, the experiences of my own life. This is who God is for us. He is the intimately acquainted God, and he calls for intimately acquainted belief. So again, we appreciate how John draws us out like this. And again, in all these things, we're just pre-reading. We're orienting ourselves for how all of these truths will be presented to us verse by verse as we study through. Jesus is the I am. So he is the revelation of the all-sufficient, eternally consistent God come to dwell with us. It's amazing. Jesus is the I am, and he's the glorious one. The signs point exactly to that. Look at Lazarus come walking out of the tomb. Jesus is stronger than being dead. That's amazing. And Jesus is the one who calls us as individuals and says, you, yes, you, you must be believing. You must be believing. Others may, others may not believe. Whatever the case may be, you must believe. Which, of course, is the point of this whole gospel account, as we keep saying. Right? That we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we would have life in His name. And we can just say this. This isn't an overstatement. This isn't an overstatement to make. There is nothing in the whole world 
from the time you're smacked into crying existence in the big wide world by the doctor when you're born to the time the last bit of dirt is laid on your casket. There is nothing more important in the whole wide world than believing in Jesus. Distractions will come and tell you differently. There is nothing more important in the whole wide world than by saying, Jesus, you are mine. I need you if I'm going to be saved. So we check ourselves. Am I believing? You know, believing isn't a one-time thing in the Christian life. I did that a while back, kind of forgot about it, but I'm good. No, no, no. No, present active, it's a verb that keeps going. Am I still believing? Am I trusting in Jesus? Is he the one who I'm placing all my faith in? It's a keep on doing it kind of thing. And so through John, we're brought to pay attention to that call again and again. Am I believing in Jesus? And so we're thankful for this word. It's God's word to us as he calls us uh, back to himself, as he calls us to see the glories of the Son, as he calls us to all these things that ultimately lead, lead to life eternal, a life eternal that we begin to experience even now in that statement, isn't it? Whoever believes my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, Jesus will go on to say that he's actually passed from death to life. Right? Life for you comes as you believe in Jesus right now. You already have defeated death through Jesus if you're believing in him today. And so we must believe. We, we must be called out and believe. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would make this uh, come alive in our hearts. We also know as we, as we read uh, this gospel that uh, the belief is nothing we can conjure up. We're not born of the will of man. We're, we're, not, we're not born into believing by our own volition. Uh, but we're born by the Spirit of God, as you'll say to Nicodemus. We need the Spirit of God to come and, and awaken the eyes of our heart to see the glories of who you are. So come and do that for us, uh, whether it's for the first time or in a renewed way this morning. We need that again and again. Please, by the ministry of your Spirit, may we see the glories uh, that are yours. And may we be believing in you, trusting in you, and finding life in your name. We ask this uh, knowing your name is strong and you will do all you promise to do. Amen.